poker may seem like a vice, but perhaps it teaches us less about how to win money and more about how we make decisions. Like investing, for example, poker requires us to make decisions, gauge risk, and trust our choices, all with incomplete information. And we're not as good at making decisions as we may think we are. So how do we overcome uncertainty, our biases, and do our best to get it right? On this episode of The Bid, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing you a live recording from our Latin America Investment Forum in Miami, where we spoke with Maria Konnikova. Maria is a psychologist who specializes in risk and decision-making. She's a New York Times bestselling author and a world champion poker player. Maria talks to us about how she got into poker, even though she detests gambling, why sometimes the smartest people in the room can often make the worst decisions, and why the only certainty in poker, as in life, is, yeah, you guessed it, uncertainty. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask the obvious question first. Sure. How and why did you get into poker? (laughs) So I initially got into poker for a book, which is going to be my next book called The Biggest Bluff, about the role of chance in our lives. And I had no interest in poker. I didn't know anything about it. I hate casinos. I hate Las Vegas. I hate gambling. I hate everything that has to do with that world. And... I came across poker actually from game theory. So someone recommended that if I'm interested in chance, I should read John von Neumann. And it ends up that John von Neumann created game theory because of poker. He was an avid poker player. He was a horrible poker player. But he had this insight. He also played chess. He played Go. He knew a lot about the gaming world, that if he wanted an analog for life, if he wanted an analog for true strategic decision-making, poker was the game for you. It wasn't chess, because chess he found incredibly boring because it was a game of complete information. There's always a right answer. There's no uncertainty, because everyone knows everything, and theoretically, you can solve chess. Poker like life, is a game of incomplete information. There are things that we know in common, but there are things that only I know, and there are things that only you know. And we need to play each other, and we need to portray ourselves in certain ways, and we bluff, and we do things that always convey information. He said that, that's human decision-making. If I can solve that, I can solve the world. And so that's how I initially got into the game. And it was so funny because I ended up becoming good, leaving The New Yorker, where I'd been for a number of years to play poker full-time. And people would say, oh my God, you became a professional gambler? And I would say, absolutely not. Because if you think that poker is gambling, you don't understand poker. Gambling is when you can't control things. And poker is a game of skill. So over the long term, the most skilled poker players, the most skilled investors, are going to come out on top. And the key is approaching it in the right way and using it correctly to approach your decision-making process. And if you do that, then it becomes something very, very different from gambling. It becomes a strategic endeavor that can, I think, unlock some of the greatest things about human decision-making and help you think about risk, help you think about uncertainty in a much smarter way. When I was getting my PhD in psychology, I studied decision-making and decision-making under conditions of risk and uncertainty. And over and over, what you come up with is that we're really bad at it. 
that the human brain is really bad at probabilities, that we have all of these biases. And what I realized was that poker is actually a solution because the human brain learns from experience. It doesn't learn very well from descriptions. So I can tell you about probabilities and you're not going to actually be able to internalize it in a way that's going to translate into your actual decision-making process. Poker forces you to make these decisions and to sample probabilities correctly and becomes the tool that can help you unbias your decision-making in very powerful ways. That was very convincing. I've never played a very successful hand of poker. So next time I see you, I'll ask for a personal tutorial because it sounds like it's a very useful approach and framework for life. So taking us out of that specific game and sort of what you learned about decision-making, what are some of the attributes that you've observed in your research of good decisions made under conditions of uncertainty (laughs) versus bad decisions? Yeah, so one of the key things that I've learned is that we end up being pretty bad at figuring out what we can and can't control. When you put us in a stochastic environment, an environment where there's a lot of uncertainty, especially an environment that's noisy, where there's not necessarily direct feedback between what you do and what happens, like the stock market, for instance, you know, there are so many things going on and you can't account for all of the factors. We tend to assume a little bit too much agency. So we tend to assume a little bit too much control over outcomes if those outcomes are good. If something goes the right way, we say, I'm the best, I'm so smart, look at me, look at how well I decided that. And then if a decision goes against us, well, there's so much in the environment that you can blame. You can say, you know what, I actually thought of everything, but this one thing happened, it's not my fault. I can't control it. I didn't. Sounds like that's familiar. (laughs) Laughter in the audience. So the beauty of poker is it's a game. I mean, it's a circumscribed environment. That's why it's easy to learn because there are only so many variables. In the investment world, I mean, the the variables are infinite. Life is messy and there's so much noise. When I did my thesis work, which involved stock market games, I actually had actual investors play stock market games. I found that people who were incredibly smart, very good at what they did, ended up falling prey to something known as the illusion of control which is thinking that you're in control when you're actually not. So they had to pick stocks and bonds, and they'd get feedback based on their decisions on how much money they were making, and they could have a strategy, and then they could change that strategy. And what ended up happening was when the environment shifted, the people who were very smart didn't shift as quickly as the people who were less successful because they said, oh, no, no, my strategy is good. It's just there are all these other things wrong, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because I know what I'm doing. And then other people would actually listen to negative feedback and say, oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing, and so I guess that maybe I should do something different. And they ended up making a lot more money. And so that's one of the key variables that I'm trying to get people to stop doing, stop falling for this illusion of control because it's very powerful and it impedes learning. You're not going to become a better investor. You're not going to start making better decisions if you constantly blame other things for your mistakes and you constantly take credit even when maybe your decision was actually absolutely wrong and you just got incredibly lucky. That's really powerful and compelling, but it's very hard to put into practice, right? So what does that mean? Trust yourself less is the right answer. How does one do that every day? How do you do that successfully and still have this sort of confidence to make decisions? Yeah, I think that it's a very fine balance. You can't constantly question yourself because 
then you'd be paralyzed if you wanted infinite information, because ultimately we are making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, and we're not going to be able to know everything. But I'm a big believer in having as objective a framework as you possibly can. When you're playing poker, it's very easy to make a bad decision and then get lucky when the one card you needed comes your way and then you kind of forget that your decision was bad because you're outcome-oriented. You look at the outcome and you say, my decision was good. And on the other hand, if you made the correct decision, but then you ended up losing, sometimes you start questioning yourself. And so it's incredibly important to actually divorce yourself from the outcome. So when I talk to my coach, I think everyone needs coaches, no matter what you do. You need to have someone with whom you can talk through things. I think this is incredibly true in the investing world. So when I talk to my coach, he actually doesn't care if I won or lost. He doesn't care what the outcome was. All he wants to know is to go through my decision-making process. At every single step, why did I do what I did? What was I thinking was going to happen? Did I think several steps ahead? Did I think how people would react to my decision? And so because I know I'm going to be explaining this, I actually have to think through it rather than just reflexively acting. So I think that this is something that we can implement in everyday life, in all of our decisions. At every step of the way, actually keep a record of what you're thinking, what variables you're considering, what things you think will look like so that you don't fall prey to something known as hindsight bias, which is where you take the data that you have right now and you retroactively apply it to back then, I call it a decision diary. And I think that these can be incredibly useful to help you be back in the moment. This is the right moment to mention that your husband's a portfolio manager. And you <laughs> this advice to him. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit, going from talking about risk decision-making to talking about trust. Everyone in this room relies on trust yep. for our success. We rely on trust in our relationships, trust in our word, yep. trust in the brands and the organizations that we support. We're also living in a time of great diminishment in trust, particularly in large institutions. Yeah. What's going on? What do you make of that? What's the research on why we trust today? Yeah. I think the first thing, which is a really wonderful thing, is that trust is usually really good. And we've evolved to trust. So when I first started researching the psychology of trust, I didn't know if it was good to trust or bad to trust, because you can see that both arguments would kind of make sense, right? That maybe it's better to not trust anyone because you're safer. But it ends up, over time, that we seem to have evolved to trust, and that trust is actually the default human condition. And if you stop to think about it, it makes a lot of sense, because who's going to survive in the wild, right? Is it the lone wolf, or is it members of the pack. You actually see throughout time and over history and throughout different societies that societies that have higher levels of something called generalized trust, which is trust in your fellow human beings, they tend to thrive. They tend to do better economically. They tend to have stronger social institutions. And on an individual level, individuals who score higher on a measure of generalized trust, they tend to do better academically. They sometimes have higher IQ in certain areas. They tend to be healthier. They tend to be happier. They tend to live longer. So it actually ends up that trust, trust, is trust <laughs> yes, trust is good. And trust is associated with all sorts of really positive outcomes. And like I said, trust is the default. So when you run studies where you actually don't give people any instructions and you have them play different games where they're playing with other people, 
They start off trusting, usually, and they end up doing much better. And if you give them specific instructions like, hey, that guy over there might not be so trustworthy, you might want to look out for them, then all of a sudden, that dynamic falls out the window, and they end up doing much worse and getting worse results as a group. But to me, it's actually inspiring that if you don't tell them anything, they start off with good intentions. Now, that said, right now, we are living at a time where we do see levels of trust at an all-time low. So in a lot of surveys around the world, you see that people are trusting governments less, they're trusting institutions less, they're trusting journalism less. I mean, we have the fake news hashtag, right? That seems to be permeating everything. But I also think that we can overcome it because I do believe in the power of trust ultimately. And I think that people understand that too. So you mentioned two things that were particularly current and interesting. One is that you believe we can sort of recapture trust, right? And the second that on an individual level, it's very powerful. And it's interesting to think about how even as we have this sort of diminishment of trust in large institutions, we have these large technology platforms that mean that more and more of us are getting in an Uber with a stranger and (laughs) trusting them to drive us somewhere. We're trusting a stranger to host us in their home because of Airbnb and it's intermediated by technology. And somehow that app or the technology platform creates trust. Why does that work? Why does that happen? And what's the takeaway that you see in that for how we can kind of build and recapture trust in pretty short order? Well, I think it's interesting, and it goes back to something that I talked about earlier on about how the mind learns and the fact that we learn from experience. Experiences are much more vivid than any description, than anything you read, than anything you hear. And as these technological platforms become ubiquitous and they're everywhere, what's your experience usually? It works out, right? It works out. And then if it doesn't, you complain and you give them two stars and and, they give you a free ride. But normally it doesn't work out in horrible ways. Normally everything is fine. And if it doesn't work out, it's because, you know, your driver was on his phone or your driver was annoying or, you know, the Airbnb had a broken shower, right? These are small problems and we trust that they'll get taken care of and normally they do. And so we actually have had a lot of positive experiences that will then make us more likely to trust this. Now, if anyone here ever had a really, really nasty experience with Airbnb, with Lyft, with Uber, with anything where you have this kind of sharing economy, all of a sudden that's going to go out the window because experience is going to trump everything else. And so even if everyone says, oh, you can use this, you can say, well, I had this you know, one crazy driver who got into an accident and then I had to go to the hospital. I'm never using ride sharing again. And then you end up in the middle of nowhere with no car and ride sharing. And what do you do? The one thing that can fight through negative experience is convenience because we're also pretty lazy. And so you can go on a moral crusade about how you're never going to use Facebook because there are privacy violations, but then it's just really convenient. So you just keep your account kind of on the side. I think that's one of the reasons that these technologies have been successful and that we do trust in them. And I think the underlying nature of this is that You know, my last book was about deception and people who deceive us. And it ends up that most people aren't out to get you. Humans are pretty decent for the most part. And so 
normally it's just fine to trust. And the bottom line of that book was that, yes, you might get deceived and you probably will, but that's okay because that's a side effect of being human. And you don't want to live in a world where you couldn't be deceived because that's also a world where trust is done. It's interesting. Much of what you just said really applies to fintech, actually. But when you have a bad experience with your money, it's pretty painful. You know, it may feel more painful to some than getting stranded on the ride sharing. And so what we're going through now is seeing many of these fintech startups trying to add in the necessary process, the necessary procedures, and even really user design to ensure that they comply with regulation, to ensure Mm -hmm. that they can protect against those bad outcomes. And much of the challenge is that tension between wanting to create convenience and wanting to preserve against a bad outcome. What do you think then is the solution and is an answer for some of these tech companies to kind of build that trust? Is it this sort of quick feedback loop that you mentioned or sort of big solutions like some of the sort of government actions that have been described? I think feedback is incredibly important. I think transparency is very important, being transparent of what you are doing and what you aren't doing and what you can't yet do, even though you wish you could. By the way, this is a slight tangent, but I think that this is one of the reasons why you know people have trouble sometimes with AI technologies because there isn't transparency there and you want to know what goes into those decision-making algorithms so that you can make a decision for yourself. You know, what are the factors and can I trust them? Because an AI is only as good as the people who built it. And if we don't know what goes into that black box, that's scary. And that goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, uncertainty. The human brain hates uncertainty and hates ambiguity and doesn't function well in those types of environments. We want to resolve it. And the people who are going to come out ahead are the people who not only tell the best stories, but tell stories that check out. So going back to that theme of uncertainty, it's exactly right in that it has this sort of negative dynamic. What is the psychology behind that? Why does uncertainty necessarily imply that we have to somehow exercise caution and sort of prepare for the worst? I mean, I think it's just the way that the human brain is wired. All of the data we have about the way that humans think makes it very clear that we want things to be neat. That's why we jump to say A causes B. We jump to put people in categories, to put labels on things, to make the world explainable. Because otherwise, if everything is uncertain, then what world are you living in? I mean, is this room here? Am I here? You know, you get into these metaphysical existential debates right away. And it actually ends up that, you know, the way that we are wired, so to speak, to see the world, it's a two-step process that was first described by a psychologist named Daniel Gilbert at Harvard University. And what Gilbert found was that there's two stages to any sort of perception, any interaction, basically anything that happens. The first one is belief. So first, we need to believe that things are true because that's the only way our brain can process it, even if it's just for a millisecond. I call this the pink elephant effect. So the moment I say pink elephant, to understand what I just said, just for a second, you need to picture a pink elephant. And then the second stage is verification. Is this true or is this false? And you can right away think, oh, pink elephant, pink elephants don't exist. False. But what ends up happening is that the second step isn't automatic, unlike the first step. So the first step always happens. But the second step doesn't always happen. It can be disrupted. We can be busy. We can be stressed. We can be emotional. We can get distracted. And so we just have this 
belief, this underlying belief that stays in our mind and becomes an incorrect memory. But that's also one of the reasons why we have false certainty about certain things. We're so much more confident in them than we should be given the information that we have because we have this memory of, oh, it's definitely true. But just imagine how many pink elephants you encounter every single day and they don't have a big waving flag that says, hey, I'm a pink elephant. You have to figure out whether or not I actually exist. You just say, yep, pink elephant, come into my head and stay there. And so I think this false sense of certainty is one of the ways that we deal with uncertainty and one of the reasons we become so overconfident, especially in areas where we have some sort of expertise, because the more you know, oftentimes the more you think you know. And some of the studies on overconfidence that scare me the most are that the greatest experts in certain areas are most prone to overconfidence because they have so much experience that they can't entertain the notion that they might not know on this specific thing. So we're back where we started, on the certainty of uncertainty (laughs) as the only certainty. And pink elephants is a very memorable visual of that. I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round of questions, which we do on every episode. All right. Okay, you ready? So you have to answer in like one sentence or less. Okay. Fake news, fad or here to stay? I think if I had to choose one of the two, it would be fad, because I believe in the human mind's ability to get through fake news. You're an optimist in this. I'm an optimist. In poker, five-card draw or Texas Hold'em? Texas Hold'em. Why? (laughs) Because if you're looking for a model of human information, it has the perfect mix of knowns to unknowns. In five-card draw, it's too much of a chance. There's too little information that's in common. Davos, where you gave a keynote this year, or Miami? I mean, I have to say Miami, right? the right answer. (laughs) There was a correct answer to that question. (laughs) Which brand do you trust the most? Wow. Which brand do I trust the most? You know, I'm actually, so I don't buy a lot of clothes. I hate shopping. So I'm going to say one of the brands that I actually trust the most is a clothing brand, Everlane. And it goes back to some of the things that we were talking about with trust and transparency. So they tell you exactly where they're sourcing every single thing that they use, and they break down their price. They show you exactly why you're paying what you're paying, and they pay their workers really well. And what about the least? Facebook. (laughs) Popular answer these days. Thank you so much for joining us, And I still have a Facebook account. Right, so do I. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. 
In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.